Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, hello, I'm Janet Marana, the Executive Director of Priests for Life. Welcome to our program. And of course, today we're going to be giving you some help and some advice. You know, raising children can be very difficult, maybe one or two or three, but imagine raising 10 children. And so joining me today is a very wonderful expert. And you know him from EWTN fame, TV and radio, Dr. Ray Guarande. And he's going to share with us how he learned about raising kids from his 10 children. And he's got a brand new book out. He's going to tell us about Talk by Taught by 10. So welcome to the program, Dr. Ray. Janet, I have to correct you. Um, what? I didn't raise, I didn't raise 10 children. My wife did. And I would UPS her things. I'd say, honey, how's it going? You doing okay? <laughs> All right. Because it, it for, for a better part of 10 or 12 years, it smelled pretty bad at our house. And so that was a problem. But uh, they're older now, they're grown. And, uh, but our last one leaves, my wife and I will be getting into a parent protection program where they'll <laughs> alter our identities and relocate us in Montana. <laughs> okay. Well, for the sake of our audience, can you please tell us the age ranges of your children now, currently? Currently, uh, well, I can do it better when they were little. 12, 11, 10, 10, 9, 7, 4, 3, 2, and baby. So it's 35 down to 23 now. Wow. Okay. So when they were little, you just ran, ran through that. So you had a baby and then what? A one-year-old? Go ahead. Go back up again now. My children are all adopted. I know. So we adopted all 10 of them. And it was kind of like eating potato chips. You know, you always think you can eat one more till you get a really bad belly ache. That's kind of what happened. Uh-huh. But I mean, you adopted all 10. So let's yes. start with the very first first one you adopted. So you I mean, it's a process, right? To go through just to adopt a child, first of all, right? Yes. I mean, yes. They they come and inspect your house and you got to get on a list and there's a lot That's of why stuff my happens. wife didn't want me here for the for the evaluations. She said, "Can we get somebody else?" To stand in for you, Ray, and I said, "Honey, I'll I'll keep my mouth shut. I will. I won't. I won't mess this up." So she you'll keep stay. your mouth shut. I don't think people realize that you can keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I, I'm better at it now than I was. Uh huh. Okay. All right. So now you went through the process. You adopted the first child. How long did you wait? Do you said, "Oh, let, let's get another one. Let's have another. Let's adopt another child." Interestingly, what happened, I think uh, God had a hand in this. I can't, I can't, uh, can't uh, assume God's motives. Our second child came from out of nowhere because there was a little girl, young mother, who said, I never had a big brother growing up and I always wanted a big brother. We were the only people on the waiting list with a little boy. So out of nowhere came our second child, our daughter. We thought we were done, Janet. I mean, two kids through adoption, that's uh, that's pretty good. And then we learned a secret. And it's what? still the same way today, but not quite as much. If you are willing to adopt across race, 
you can adopt more quickly. I asked an adoption worker once, I said, if we're willing to adopt a black baby boy infant, how long would we have to wait? And she said, what are you doing tomorrow? You're kidding. No. Yeah, we have three white, two Hispanic, two biracial, three black. I mean, when my wife used to go through the store, people would look and say, is this some kind of club or something? And they'd look at me and they'd say, that major dork doesn't realize them ain't all his. I said, well, I suspect her, but I can't catch her. <laughs> so you had this very wonderful multi multicultural family then, right? <laughs> Brood. Yes, we did. Yeah. And I learned a lot from them. But at what point, I mean, at what point when you got to 10, <clears throat> did your wife then say, okay, we're done? Or... You know, like, how did you stop at 10? We came within inches of number 11. I really? paid all the fees. Yeah, we went through all the parenting programs. I had to go through the parenting programs, but when the people found out that I'm a shrink and that we already had 10 kids, they started asking me the questions rather than the adoption worker. <laughs> My wife took me out to a restaurant after all this. And she uh -huh. said, Ray, if you want to adopt 11, I will. But I have to tell you, I'm at my load limit. And I, being a very sensitive husband, very nurturant and very compassionate, I said, oh, you wimp. I said, I work for a living. And I said, honey, you make the call. You're the one who's doing the bulk of this child rearing. You make the call. And she said, I think 10 is enough. I said, okay. She pulled the plug. Yeah. She pulled the adoption plug on you. Oh, my God. She goodness. did. Okay, so now you have a brand new book out called Taught by 10, right? Yeah. So, so what you're claiming is all your great ideas about parenting and how, <laughs> how all the parents watching right now are dealing with raising their kids, you, you got from your kids, right? Actually, no. I mean, no? I deal with hundreds and thousands of parents. So many of my ideas on how to make a family run smoothly, I had already picked up over the years from all the parents who taught me. However, living it day to day confirmed a lot of stuff. For example, mm -hmm. this is just kind of a sidelight here, Janet. Three of my children came very close to abortion, very, very close to abortion. Wow. And their mothers, their birth mothers, chose to let them live. And in some cases, against the culture all around them, nearby, family, all of that. Wow. So we let our children know in no uncertain terms, not only were they loved enough to be placed with a mommy and a daddy, but they were loved enough to be allowed to live. Wow. And we always emphasize that act of love. And the children, all of them are wildly pro-life because they recognize they would have been ones in our culture that the culture would have said, hey, this is an at-risk child. Do what you need to do. And their birth mothers didn't. So that was one of the first things that happened as the children started to grow up. They became 100% pro-life because they realized Absolutely. It, it could have been me is what they really Easily. realized. Easily. Could Easily. Have been me. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. So one of the other things I learned. I yeah, what is, come on, let's hear. Let's get some advice. You have, to have, you have to have authority. 
If you don't have authority, you can't raise 10 kids. If you don't have authority, you can't raise one kid. We had to early on establish our authority or else life would have been chaos. Nobody would have wanted us to come to their house. Nobody would have wanted us to go to a restaurant where they were eating. We established our authority very early. If we told you to go to the corner and you didn't go, there were many consequences that were gonna to happen to you. And as a consequence, it was a lot easier for us to raise 10 children because we had authority. My wife had a technique she used, it was very simple. When things got crazy, she would simply say, get a book and sit down. And all the kids had to grab a book, find a place to sit and just either look at the pictures or read. That was her way of pulling the plug on the chaos when it got to the point where it was getting close to nuclear warhead. <laughs> okay. But, you know, this is a very important um, point right now because I think in today's society, I don't know about what you get like with parents calling you and getting, getting advice, but my observation, I see too many parents kind of um, trying to play, let's make a deal with the kid, you know? You know what I mean? Like, oh, um, come on now. It's it's time that we have to go inside now uh, and stop playing. It's almost dinner time, right? You know what I'm trying to say? They, they're trying to, like, get them to agree to what they want them to do by negotiating. I mean, not for nothing. When I was raised and even when I raised my kids, if I said it's time to go in, we went in now. There was no negotiation. But don't you find that there's this negotiation going on with too many parents. And, and that's what this is. It's not establishing my authority. Like when my kids used to say to me, well, why? Like, why do I have to do that? And you know what my answer was? Because I said so. That's right? true, because you're mom and you make the I'm decisions. the mom and I said so. But you know what I'm saying, Dr. Ray? Nowadays, don't you find that there's a problem of parents not establishing their authority and not being that kind of parent that says, no, you have to do this because I'm the parent and I said so. What, what do you have to say to that? The psychologists have swamped parenting with psychological correctness, with can't we all just get along? Come, let us reason together. And the child will say, oh, mother, I've been so blind. Of course, you're the parent. Let's all sing Kumbaya around the campfire. <laughs> what has happened from your generation, Janet, and mine is there's been a tremendous erosion of authority, of self-confidence, of resolve, of I'm the parent, you're not among parents. And the consequence has been, I don't enjoy my kids. I don't like this, this is not fun. You're right, we over-negotiate, we over-talk, we re-re-re-re-re-re-re-remind. And as a result, we're not, we're not confident in our discipline. The average grandmother of two generations ago probably had more authority than the PhD psychologist does raising his five-year-old. Right. Yeah. I know. So authority, we would say then that's the number one problem, right? In raising yes, kids. It is. You haven't established Absolutely. authority in your household if you don't do that. And what I'm finding too, Dr. Ray, is especially with teenagers now, all right, because like, for example, okay, I'll give you an example. Right now, I have some cousins staying with me while they're relocating from Florida to New York, all right? So I got a 13-year-old staying in my house right now. He'll, he'll be moving out soon. But let me tell you, <laughs> I have to do this. 
Mm. Because my attitude is, it's time to have dinner. You're going to come inside to the dinner table and eat. Oh, no. If he's not ready to eat, he'll say, I'm not hungry right now. So the, they all, we all eat as a family. And then later, the prince comes out of the computer room from gaming and says, all right, two hours later, now I'm hungry. And they give him his food. Me, I would have said, sorry, dinner's over. Uh, see you tomorrow, right? I mean, well, you're Italian you and you're and you're East Coast, so you got two for two there. Um, <laughs> but don't you think that's a problem that parents don't establish a dinner time and put down the devices, sit as a family? I mean, isn't that would that be isn't that a chapter in your book somewhere? <laughs> oh yes. As a matter of fact, I've written many books on this and how we are allowing children to set the conditions. One of the things we learned as parents is that we had to salvage their innocence, which meant very limited computer time, which meant cell phones, smartphones, uh, 16, 17, maybe 18 years of age. We're not going to give it to you when you're 11 or 10 or even 13. That's not going to happen. We realize that the culture is shaping our children, and that's why so many of them at age 15, 18, 20, 25 tell the parents, hey, look, I'm... Uh, I'm really kind of leaving the way you raised me. You understand that, don't you? And your religion is something I'm spitting out. So as a result, the culture was allowed into the home to shape the souls of those kids. And then the parent looks at the child at age 19 and says, I didn't raise that. And I'll say to them, I agree with you. I believe you didn't, but you underestimated what did. And that 13-year-old nephew of yours, who's basically allowed to set the conditions, I will only do what I wish to do if it suits me. And his parents go along and they compromise. At age 19, they may look at that child and say, what happened? Why is he like this? Right. Well, and that's, I didn't say it to, to the parent of the child because, you know, I don't want to get into an argument, but I said it to someone else here at work and I said, you know what's going to happen when he's 18 or 19? He's going to tell him to go jump in a lake. He's not going to listen to them. He's going to be rebellious. Right? <clears throat> so let's just talk about the devices for a minute. Because I think, I, is there a chapter in this book about the devices? It's got to be, right? <laughs> you know? Well, there is, but I've written a whole book about devices. I've talked about, it's called Raising Upright Kids in an Upside Down World. And it talks about how the devices, pop culture, social media, entertainment, bad peer influences can shape your kid so that you can look at this 12 year old or 16 year old and say, what is going on? Why are they like this? Why do they think this way? Janet, you know the average age of a smartphone now for a child? What? Nine to 10. That's Putting, crazy. Put, it's, it's insanity. Putting the internet into a child's hands, the right. world, the sewage of the world, and saying, here, go wherever you wish. Now, some parents will say, oh, we're not like that. That's ridiculous. We, we didn't give our child a smartphone until he was 13. And I want to <laughs> say, that's still a huge mistake. Right. And, they, and they usually get bitten by it. They, they come to me and they say, I, I can't believe where he went. I can't believe what he saw. I can't believe that he's turning off towards school. I can't believe she's 12 years old and she's madly in love with some kid she's been texting for the last four months. 
I can't believe we went to grandpa's birthday party and they didn't even sing happy birthday because they were over in the corner on their phones. This is routine, but the parents surrender to it because they're afraid. They're afraid the kid will be resentful. They're afraid the kid won't like them. They're afraid that they'll quote unquote socially isolate their child. So what happens is they compromise right. at risk. Well you know what I find find is is the problem here now. It's almost like, well, if my kid doesn't have the phone and all the friends do, then they're like the black sheep. You know what I mean? Like they're isolated then from their friends because they can't be in on the cool things the other kids are texting and talking about, right? So that that's you, true. Like, so if a parent tries to say, like you just suggested, oh, until you're 16, you're not getting a phone. But then they become the weird kid, right? In the class. Do you well, know why we the okay. only kid with no cell phone, right? Well, here's the question. Okay, this doesn't mean they don't have to have a cell phone, maybe a flip phone. But you notice they don't want a flip phone. If you offer a flip phone to a 14-year-old, she'll look at you. Ew, how does it work? What's it do? I'm not going to use right. that in front of my friends. They'll think I'm weird. So it's not that they that they resist the phone. They want the latest, greatest of the phones. And the parents are so afraid of psychological ill effects if they don't go along with the culture, even though the culture with these phones is going off a cliff. They're right. saying, well, I guess we better go off a cliff because otherwise I don't want to take what's going on with my child. I'll give you a small example, Janet. Had a guy come to me. I was raking leaves. Guy comes to me, says, did you see a 15-year-old girl go through here? I said, no. He said, oh, no, she ran away then. And I said, you took her smartphone, didn't you? And he said, how did you know? And I said, because if you want to see how addicted a kid is to a smartphone, take it away. For any reason, take it away and watch what happens. She ran away. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, and <clears throat> see, that's that's the point right there is. Now, because but most parents listening right now will say, uh oh, I already made the mistake. My kid's 10, mm -hmm. 11, 12. Mm -hmm. I already given the, the smartphone. Okay. They sure. already have the phone. So, like you just said, extracting them from the phone. But isn't there some wise um, kind of um, restrictions you can put on that phone? Like, for example, if, if I was, you know, a parent dealing with this right now, I would say, well, first of all, you cannot take the phone into your bedroom. Okay. Cannot. Okay. Because do you know how many kids I see and hear about? They, they're allowed to take the phone into the bedroom. They plug it in and they're laying That's in bed right. and they're on their phone. And you know what the reason I hear is? Oh, because they set their alarm when they have to get up for school. What happened to mom waking them up? <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Well, what happened to mom waking them up? Right? I'll done, wake you they've up. They've done surveys. And I think yeah. Catholic Christian parents are as guilty as this as anybody else. They've done surveys. And what they find is that the majority of parents have no safeguards on the phones. They don't use covenant eyes. They don't use a wise phone. They don't pair the kid's phone to their phone so they see everything the kid does on that phone. They don't do that. They just give the phone. That's the first thing. But you're absolutely right. You can set, you can set restrictions. For example, it doesn't go in your room. It doesn't go to school. It right. is in the kitchen. You can do this. You can set these restrictions, but most parents don't. They don't because they just assume their child is trustworthy. And the religious parents are more guilty of that because they think I'm raising him 
to have morals and virtue. Therefore, he will be trustworthy. The problem is you can't have that conveyor belt of the culture floating right. by a kid. I don't care how trustworthy they are. I'll give you a statistic, Janet. What percentage of boys ages 11 to 19 have seen pornography on their computer or their phone? I, I would guess 90%. You're exactly right. It do is I win 90%. a prize? <laughs> you do. No, because I'm going to stay no. with you for another 12 minutes because of that. No, because you know what it is, Dr. Wright? You just named some things pretty quickly that they can put as restrictions. So t tell us one more. What are, what are some of those restrictions? Well, first of the pairing is the most important. Pairing the yeah, phone really with is. your phone. That's number That's one. That's right. You'll and if they don't know how to do it, if mm -hmm. they don't know how to do it, you went to the Apple store and you bought That's such right. a fancy phone, go back and make an appointment at the Apple store mm -hmm. and say to them, please show me how to pair this phone with my kid's phone with my phone, show me how to put restrictions on and they can show you, can't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You can wipe out all apps. You can wipe out the internet. Of course you could do all of this. You can get a wise phone. A wise phone is something that I'm not real sure of the details, but I've had many good parents recommend it to me, which is a phone that for the most part just simply shields everything of danger toward that child. You can get Covenant Eyes, which is a very good screening system uh, for children, uh, keeping them from going where you don't want them to go. That can happen. Uh, sometimes the parents will say, yeah, but, you know, the phone's important because I, it's a safety factor. I need to know where they are. You say, okay, good. Get them a flip phone. Oh, he won't allow that. He won't tolerate that. Well, <laughs> who's the parent here? Right, right. You know what I call it, Janet? And I learned this with my own children. You cannot parent in fear. You cannot be afraid that they're going to get upset with you, that they're going to quote unquote resent you, that they're going to go behind your back and get sneaky. You have to do what you think is good. One of the lines in my book I said is this. If my children drift away or reject the way they were raised, I want it to be because they had to go through me, not because I stepped aside. Right. That's great. <laughs> That's wonderful. No, it's true. <clears throat> you know, I just think too many parents are afraid to set tighter boundaries on their kids. I mean, you know, I, I just can't imagine. I mean, my kids, it, I wish back when I was raising them, if I had five or 10 bucks for every time they told me they hated me, I'd be very wealthy right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? Come on. Come on, Dr. Well, Ray. I, you, I, I was hate three years you. old. Huh? I was three years old. And I told my mother, I don't like you. And she looked at me. She said, Raymond, you're a little bit behind. I stopped liking you last year. See, she was an Italian parent. You couldn't psychologically slap around Italian parents. They just didn't buy into it, you know? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the I hate you thing, I mean, you have to, that's water off a duck's back. They don't really mean it, but they're upset that you won't give in to them for what they want. That's what happens, right? Something I learned big. The parents who watch you, Janet, are going to feel that they're countercultural. They're going to feel that the culture is really at odds with their parenting. And they're worried. They're worried about their high standards. They're worried about trying to teach virtue. They're worried about making their kids go to church. 
And they're worried about their kids are going to get resentful and rebellious. And I tell them, you can have high standards. You can have standards way above the cultures. Make sure that you got a whole lot of affection in your home. My son played basketball at a local high school. Before the games, I talk about this in the book, I sat in the bleachers about four rows back from the team. I waited for the right time before the game. I went down, I grabbed my son, I hugged him, and I kissed him on the cheek, right in front of all his, all his teammates. I said, I love you, Petey. And then I said, try not to stink the joint out. And he laughed. And that was brazen. I mean, think about this. This is a 17-year-old kid. And his old man is coming down and hugging him in front of the stands. You know what he told me later, Janet? He said that a couple of his classmates, his teammates, came up to him and said, I wish my dad would do that. Right. I wasn't going to allow my teenagers to say to me in public, no affection in public, dad. Don't touch me in public, dad. Don't tell me you love me in public, dad. Don't be seen with me in public, dad. Hey, dad, don't say pull my finger in public. <laughs> no, I'm going to, I'm the dad and I'm going to show you all the love I can. And just because you're 15, I'm not going to back off and say, well, he doesn't like it. Right. I like it. And, and every one of my kids, yeah, every one of my kids didn't resist it. They may have been a little embarrassed, but later on, they said, I'm glad you did that. Great. Okay. So now you have written, I think, I don't know, over a dozen books probably. And I, I've read quite a few of them and they're all fantastic. So this new one taught by 10 and all your other books are available at where? Show us the book. Oh, I love see, there's it. There's a picture. You see the picture of the kids in the front there? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Time to turn that so you can, there you go. You can see that like that. If you okay. go to drray.com, D-R-R-A-Y.com, all 18 books are there, and uh, this latest one was just put up, so it's there, and, I, and it's signed. I sign all the books. You do? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to get a copy of Taught by 10. I can't wait. So, But listen, I want, you to, I want to have you back, okay? Maybe you'll come back in a couple of weeks. We'll do this again, because I find parents crave to hear like the kind of advice you're giving them here, so that if you've already made some mistakes, you can still self-correct a little bit here. Like with the advice we gave them with the cell phone, you can limit it. You're the parent. You know, when they come in, you know, when you come to the dinner table, you eat at a set time where the cell phones go on the counter away, not at the dinner table, right? I mean, there are some things you could do as a parent to take charge, right, Dr. Ray? <laughs> My wife said, she said to be a good parent, you have to have a bit of a mean streak in you. And what she meant by that was not mean. She meant stiffness of spine, right. that you knew as the parent that this kind of behavior is not good. You can't be disrespectful. There will be consequences. You right. can't simply say, I don't want to eat with the family. You can't just do that. That's not going to happen. And right. overall, the parent has to have enough confidence that in the end, that's going to be a better way to do it. That's right. Well, Dr. Wright, thank you for joining me today. God bless you and keep up the good fight. God bless you for your, all your advice. Thanks, Janet. Okay. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you learned a few things today and you can learn so much more. Please go to his website, drray.com. 
uh, Taught by Ten is his newest book, and the others there are also fabulous. And you'll get all the advice you need to raise good Christian and Catholic kids. So this is Janet Moran, our executive director of Priest for Life. Thank you for joining us today. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.